Garrettson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City, 1510 AM and 94.5 FM. It's our final edition of The Shift of the Week on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Shout out to our presenting sponsors, starting with Garrettson and Toth. They handle the most complex felony, federal, or state criminal defense cases. You'll find them in doing that successfully, helping criminal defendants all over the Kansas City area and Northeast Kansas for years. Also, be sure to visit Kim Howard and Associates Agency at 105th and Metcalf in Overland Park, or give Kim and her team a call at 913-649-2002. That's 913-649-2002 for a quote on your home and auto insurance today. And remember that if you call that number and mention that you heard their ad here on The Shift, Kim and her team will give you a free $10 gift card to Starbucks to use on whatever you would like, coffee, tea, breakfast items. It's your $10. All you got to do is call that number at 913-649-2002. Again, that's 913-649-2002. And tell them that you heard their ad here on The Shift. It was a wild but very fun four-game slate down in Kansas City, the T-Mobile Center, yesterday for the Big 12 tournament. Couple of upsets, couple of blowouts, and couple of thrillers, I would say. And maybe if you want to say a thriller, I would go more so of competitiveness. Because if we're going to categorize a thriller, I guess that would likely mean a game being decided in the final two minutes. None of those four games were decided in the final two minutes. In fact, a handful of them got out of hand with about five or six minutes to go. But let's start up top with Iowa State and Baylor. The Cyclones top the Bears 78-72. They complete a perfect three-game sweep over the Bears in the regular season and counting the postseason. The Bears had just lost at home to Iowa State by double digits, and you felt like there was no way in hell this Baylor team being able to have Keontae George back, having a guy like Jalen Bridges shoot 10 of 11 from the floor and 7 of 8 from 3. He, by the way, was a 28% three-point shooter coming in. But Jalen Bridges goes nuclear, misses only one shot, one three-pointer, also has three steals. Adam Flagler has three steals. Keontae George has two steals. Now Flagler gives you 14. George gives you double figures with 11. Cryer gives you 10. And the Bears lost yet again to Iowa State, 78-72. to Gabe Kalsher led the Cyclones in scoring with 24 points on 9-15 of shooting. They also got 17 from Jaron Holmes and then got 13 from Tameen Lipsy. So Iowa State, going into this game, really just used the fuel they had from beating Baylor in the regular season. Now, they didn't change up much of the game plan. They were fantastic in rebounding the ball. This was the difference in the game. And this might be the most jarring stat I've seen in a Big 12 game in maybe the last four to five weeks. Iowa State out-rebounded Baylor 43-15. to 43-15. And might I add, Baylor is not a small team. Flo Thamba is six foot ten. Yes, they do play with a four-guard lineup. Jalen Bridges is a bit of a stretch four, but he's 6'7". 
So you have 6'10", 6'7", and then you have a guy like Keontae George, who's 6'4", and then you have two smaller guards. But Baylor was getting out-rebounded like they were some JV high school squad. I mean, I've never seen a team, a good team at that, an NCAA tournament-bound team, get out-rebounded like that. And it's not like Iowa State had three or four guys record double-doubles. Kalsher had four boards, Holmes had five, Lipsy had 11, and I think that maybe was the difference because Lipsy's 6-1. Tameen Lipsy is 6-1 and had 11 rebounds. King had six, Jones had two, Osuniyi had two, and Kunk had four. Ward had four as well. So it was more of a well-balanced rebounding attack for the Iowa State Cyclones. They had 20 offensive rebounds to Baylor's three. And Baylor's biggest knock, outside of not being able to rebound the basketball very well, all season long, it's been their ability to defend, or lack thereof. You go back to the end of January. Here are some of the totals they allowed in games that they either won or lost. Just their entire slate of games at the very end of January, into yesterday. So when they played Arkansas, this was maybe their last great defensive performance that you could kind of pinpoint, winning in a rock fight. And you can say, well, they played great defensively in a blowout, but it was more so in the offensive end. They allowed only 64 points to Arkansas. They allowed 76 to Texas. Then they had a good defensive performance against Texas Tech, but they routed them by 27. Then they gave up 72 to Oklahoma, 68 to TCU, 67 to West Virginia, 87 to Kansas, 75 to Kansas State, 72 to, Te- or t- 72 to Texas, 68 to Oklahoma State, and then 73 to Iowa State. And their losses to Iowa State, defense was a problem. They gave up 78 yesterday, 73 at the end of the regular season, and 77 way back on December 31st. When they lost to TCU at home, they gave up 88. When they lost to Kansas State at home, they gave up 97. When they lost to Marquette on the road, they gave up 96. So in those losses, if you can pinpoint one thing Baylor didn't do very well, it was defend. And I think it's the difference in the Baylor team from two years ago that won a national championship. And even last year, I know they got bounced by North Carolina in the second round. But Baylor this year just can't defend. And let me tell you why in a more complex way, why it's going to derail this team a week from now. Go back to the game against Kansas at Allen Fieldhouse when they led by 17. If you can't defend, you can't hold off teams. You can't hold off good offensive teams, which are going to run into a a handful of them in the NCAA tournament. So you have a 10, 15, 17-point lead. If you can't defend, you can't prevent teams from coming back. And on the flip side, go to yesterday's game against Iowa State when they were trailing by 7 or 8 or 10 points. And every time they'd score, they couldn't get the stop. They weren't good enough defensively. They're not good enough on the perimeter. They're not good enough down in the post. They can't defend that well. And Baylor and their losses this year have been putrid in defending. Their first loss of the year against Virginia. And a Virginia team, might I add, that is not known for their offensive prowess. They hung 86 on Baylor. So 86 on Baylor against Virginia. 
Marquette dropped 96. Iowa State 77. TCU 88. Kansas State 97. Texas 76. Kansas 87. And Kansas State 75. Iowa State 73 and 78. Now, in that last game stretch that I pointed out where they hadn't been great defensively, some of the times they were really good defensively, they were blowing teams out. You know, I thought they were pretty good defensively when they played Kansas and Waco. I thought they were pretty good defensively when they thumped Texas Tech. thought they were all right when they beat TCU in Fort Worth. thought they were okay when they beat Texas on Saturday, February 25th. It's just a flawed team. It's a flawed team that has a lot of talent, but they're not good enough defensively and they can't rebound. Those are two things you absolutely have to have to make a deep run in March, and I think Scott Drew would tell you that because he does have a national title in the last three years. That team was great defensively. They didn't struggle to rebound the ball. And yesterday, it all came to a head. Iowa State humiliated Baylor in the second half. The Bears led 41-38 at the end of the first break. They were outscored by nine in the second half, but it's the rebounding total for me. 20 offensive boards to three, and they were out-rebounded 43-15. to Iowa State had more turnovers, and they shot it at a worse clip from the free throw line. They shot it at a worse clip from three-point range. Here is a jarring stat as well. Baylor made 14 threes yesterday, shot nearly 50% from deep, and lost by six, and it was a garbage-time three. Iowa State dominated that game, and they're going to be moving on to play in the semifinals matchup today with the Kansas Jayhawks, who won yesterday despite not having Bill Self 78-61. to And I know that we've said this a couple of times about a Kansas game, that it might be their most impressive performance of the season. I'm not going to go that far. But from what had happened early on this morning, and who knows when the team was informed, I believe Norm Roberts was saying in the post game that the players found out last night that Bill Self was going to be checked into the hospital. He likely wasn't going to be coaching that game. And they returned to Norm Roberts. But this was a West Virginia team that had a comfortable spot in the NCAA tournament and more so came down to which seed they would be, whether that be a 10, 9, or an 8, maybe a 7 if they went to the championship game. But they were red hot. They had a sharpshooter in Eric Stevenson. They had one of the best guards in the country in Kedrian Johnson. They also had the Texas transfer and Trey Mitchell, and Emmett Matthews Jr. is another stretch four that had been very effective over the last stretch of the regular season. And Emmett Matthews had given Kansas trouble before. You know, in the matchup in Allen Fieldhouse, he gave them 13. You know, against KU in the, in the game yesterday, he had 10, but he had 20 against Kansas State in the regular season finale. So, West Virginia was really finding their groove offensively. They had hung 89 on Kansas State in that regular season finale and dominated Texas Tech in the opening round. So you kind of felt like Kansas wasn't due for a trap game because I don't think they were overlooking West Virginia. But it was possible when you look at 18 to 22-year-olds, they can come out flat when so many things have been thrown at them. And a guy like Kevin McCuller was questionable to start the game. You know, they weren't sure if Kevin McCullough was going to play with his back spasms, and Joseph Yesfu got the start yesterday. But why this Kansas team is going to be a lot of people's pick to emerge from whatever region they're in, if they're in the Midwest or the West or the East or the South, the reason a lot of people are going to pick Kansas is not because 
that they were the best team in the best conference in college basketball. I think this Kansas team, the thing that differentiates them from last year's championship squad is that they are really, really good defensively. And they've had their slip-ups this year, as every college basketball team does. But when you have Dewan Harris, even with his size, be able to go and defend a guy like Eric Stevenson, who should be more so of a matchup for Kevin McCuller when healthy, it shows you the range they have, the depth they have, the flexibility they have. And Dewan Harris is one of the better defending guards in college basketball. K.J. Adams is one of the better defending big men in college basketball, if you can call him that. He's 6'7 on a good day. You can get great defense from Kevin McCuller even yesterday when he was probably 70%. One of the guys that has stood out to me and has really improved his game on the defensive side from November to now is Ernest Uday. Ernest Uday is 6'10 and moves really well for a big man. He can defend on the perimeter. He's not fouling as much as he used to. And that was a difference maker in the game yesterday. When West Virginia was getting those stops on Kansas, when Kansas went a little bit cold, they couldn't capitalize on the offensive end. That's what you have to be able to do when you're trying to upset a top seed in March. You got to be able to hit the deep shot. You got to be able to go on those runs, those 8-0, 10-0 runs. Take the crowd out of it. And West Virginia... Never really took the crowd out of it. Kansas led by eight at halftime, and they outscored the Mountaineers by nine in the second half. Now, West Virginia, they shot 45% from the floor. Kansas did shoot over 50% because they shot over 65% in the second half. Kansas didn't shoot it great from deep. They were 7 of 20. West Virginia was far worse. 4 of 19, 21.1% clip from beyond the arc. Kansas also shot 41% from the free throw line. But West Virginia wasn't good enough. They shot 63% from the free throw line. Kansas only out-rebounded them by five. They only had one less turnover. They had only four more offensive rebounds. It was just a clean game. Now, I I think with this starting five, with Joseph Yesvu implemented into it, they fared pretty well. It was a balanced approach again. Jalen Wilson started one of seven for the game but then responded very well, finished 9 of 17, 22 points, 11 boards, and 2 assists. Grady Dick got back on track. We've been needing to see this from Grady Dick because he had been in a bit of a slump. He had disappeared on the offensive side of things. He had 18 points and knocked down four three-pointers. Dewan Harris gave Kansas 13 points and 8 assists, only turned it over two times and had five steals. K.J. Adams had 13 points and three vicious dunks in the game. And off the bench, McCuller gave you three with one three-pointer and seven boards and one steal. And Ernest Uday had a bucket as well and four rebounds to go along with that. It's a game that Kansas really needed. You had the clunker against Texas and Austin in the regular season finale. You wanted to be able to take care of business against a team like West Virginia, who, might I add, just became another quad one win for the Kansas Jayhawks. That's important, even if they were to lose tonight to Iowa State. They're trying to hang on to that one seed in the Midwest region, even more so, I would say, than the number one overall seed. But I think if we're going to go and make that prediction, if Kansas is the number one overall seed, they would be in the Midwest region, of course, because you get to pick your region. But maybe Kansas could still find a way to fall in the Midwest region if they weren't the number one overall seed. But the more quad one wins you rack up, the better chance you're going to have at maintaining that top seed in the NCAA tournament. 
this loss really doesn't hurt West Virginia at all. I think they should be a nine seed. I know Joe Lunardi had them as a ten seed in his most recent bracketology. They're a nightmare matchup for whoever the two seed would be. Moving on to the next round. Assuming that two seed can make it past the 15 seed. You never know in the NCAA tournament. But this loss should not do anything to West Virginia. They're 19 and 14 overall. They were great in quad one games this year. They are incredibly dangerous. They just ran into the best team in the conference. And that's unfortunate for them. It wasn't like Oklahoma State who got Texas. And even though Texas is still a very good program, and they just recently beaten Kansas, Texas really isn't in that same wavelength in Kansas City as the Jayhawks usually are. West Virginia just went into a buzzsaw and took on a Kansas team that was far more motivated than depleted yesterday without their coach in Bill Self. And Bill Self, might I add, will not be coaching the remainder of the Big 12 tournament. The jury is still out enough he will coach in the NCAA tournament. The next game, game number three in Kansas City yesterday, was probably the most boring. It was a snooze fest. Bad offensive performances. And I think in college basketball, there's nobody that really enjoys watching great defense. I think you want to see the ball go through the the hoop more times than not. And the Longhorns won comfortably 60-47 to over the Cowboys. Oklahoma State shot a dismal 27% from the floor, only made 14 shots, was 3 of 21 from deep, and shot 64% from the free throw line. Texas, on the other hand, they were not that impressive either. They shot 37% from the floor, 31% from deep, and 76% from the free throw line. I don't want to spend too much time on this game because if I was to just chalk it up, it was Texas taking care of business. Only two guys for Oklahoma State scored in double figures, and that was Caleb Asbury, and then they also got Caleb Boone to give them 11. Other than that, nobody was a factor for Oklahoma State. Bryce Thompson was 2 of 10 from the floor. Uh, They also only got 7 points from John Michael Wright. They only got 5 points from Cissé. And they only got two points from Tyreek Smith. So Oklahoma State now is going to have to be sitting on pins and needles for the selection show on Sunday, which you can listen to live on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Josh Briscoe and I will have a full rundown of that bracket starting at 430. There will be some leaks, of course, before the bracket officially comes out. We'll be taking you all the way up until 8 p.m. And we'll see if Oklahoma State will be a talking point. On Sunday. Right now, I think they are on the outside looking in at 18 and 15. They likely needed a big win against Texas to get into the NCAA tournament because I don't think the committee will look at their win against Oklahoma and consider that to be that impressive of a win. So Texas wins 60 to 47 over the Cowboys. They move on to the semifinals game and will take on the TCU Horn Frogs, who really had the best performance, I will go out and say of anybody yesterday. They take down Kansas State 80-67, to the worst three-point shooting team in the country, or one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the country, the worst three-point shooting team in the conference. They knocked down 11 last night against Kansas State. They go 11 of 25, shoot 44% from deep, 40% from the floor. Kansas State shot a higher clip from the floor and better percentage from the free throw line, but it wasn't really close. TCU led by five at the break and outscored the Cats by eight in the second half. Charles O'Bannon, or Chuck O'Bannon, excuse me, had 22 points, had four three-pointers. Mike Miles, one of the best guards in the country, he also was four of seven from deep, had 22 points. And those were the two stars in this game for TCU. 
and they limited turnovers. What did we say about Kansas State going into postseason play? Whether they win or lose, look at the box score and look at one stat, and it's turnovers. And TCU had nine last night. Kansas State had 19. And more importantly, what did we say? Look at the turnovers for Marquise Noel. He has one or two or three. K-State's likely winning. He has any more than that, they're likely losing. And I'm looking at the box score right here. Marquise Noel led Kansas State in turnovers last night with five. Five turnovers from your point guard, who was five of 13 from the floor, one of nine from deep. Come on, or, or uh, Keontae Johnson also had four turnovers. Desi Sills had three. Naquan Tomlin had two. Cam Carter had two. And Bebe Igiola had two as well. 19 in total for the Cats, and that was the difference. Along with TCU going outside their mind, shooting outside their mind for that matter, and being better on the defensive side of things. But even I would say TCU's defense was good. A lot of it was K-State trying too hard and shooting themselves in the foot. And that's exactly what Jerome Tang said in the press conference. He said the result of their turnovers, the reason for their turnover problems, is that it's guys trying too hard. And when they get down by a lot, they're trying to force things. They're pressing. They're trying to get the quick bucket. They're trying to make the hero play. And that's not going to work. And that's not going to work in the Big 12. Now, like I said with TCU, it is a team when healthy. They're one of the top teams in the Big 12. They'd shown signs of inconsistency. They're very similar to Baylor. Right, Baylor, who we just hammered for losing to Iowa State, Baylor still has talent. Baylor can beat anybody in the conference, and they've shown that this year, except for Iowa State. TCU, on the other hand, they've never really been healthy. And maybe the Eddie Lampkin situation was more of a distraction than anything, and now that he's gone from the program, they had one of their better performances of the year against a top-three team in the conference in Kansas State. But it's not a bad loss for Kansas State. Nobody's going to say that. This TCU team could very well beat Texas and then beat the winner of Kansas and Iowa State. I could absolutely see a scenario in which that happens. Hell, I may throw my eggs in a basket and call the Horn Frogs to win tonight. That'd be going back on my predictions that I made on 810, the video we tweeted out on social media. I had Kansas and Texas meeting in the Big 12 championship. Maybe I should hold on to that projection just so I'm not bouncing all over the place. But I'll just go out and say that I think TCU has a damn good chance still of winning the Big 12 tournament. They can do a lot for their seeding in the NCAA tournament with wins over Kansas State, Texas, and then maybe if they got to face Kansas in the Big 12 championship game. But Kansas State, it goes back to the same damn problem over and over and over again. Turnovers and turnovers with their number one point guard and Marquise Noel, who had five. Now you have to go back to Manhattan, regroup a little bit, get rested up. But I did find this interesting, that Kellis Robinette tweeted this out earlier this morning. This was at about 9.08 a.m. And you can follow Kellis Robinette for all things K-State at Kellis Robinette on Twitter. He said the latest bracket projection from Joe Lunardi has Kansas State as a four seed opening against Toledo and Albany. Starting to feel like the Wildcats will need some good fortune to end up in Des Moines or Denver. Think about how things, things or think about how quickly the NCAA tournament can change things up. We were talking about earlier this week before the tournament of Kansas State being on the cusp of a two-seed, getting to play in Des Moines, 
Hell, maybe being in the Midwest region and getting to go on and play in Kansas City. Then it was, well, if they're a three seed, they could still play in Des Moines or Denver. Now in the latest bracket projection, they're a four seed playing in Albany. A long, long ways from Manhattan, Kansas. That's how quickly things can change. Now, I want to go out and say that I'm going to agree with the majority here, the population here, when looking at Kansas State, even a first-round exit in the NCAA tournament, it won't be a failure of a season for Jerome Tang and Kansas State because of where their expectation was. But at the same time, it would sting a lot because of how quickly things fell apart at the tail end of the season. Now, wash away this loss. It's not a terrible loss. You can still make a run in the Sweet 16, Elite 8, and Final Four for that matter. They have the talent. They have two all-Big 12 first-team guys. They've got experience on this team, even though it was experience from other schools. But if Kansas State gets the Albany region as a four-seed, that is a brutal mishap. That likely occurred from their just last two losses in the regular season and then the Big 12 tournament. So K-State falls 80-67 to to the TCU Horn Frogs. They will go home to Manhattan. TCU stays in Kansas City. And that sets up our matchups tonight between Kansas and Iowa State. They will tip off at 6 p.m. on ESPN. can also listen to them on Sports Radio 810 WHB. The Hawks are a four-and-a-half-point favorite. The over-under at 130-and-a-half. And tipping off 30 minutes after the conclusion of Kansas and Iowa State, it'll be TCU and Texas round three in that matchup as well. Right now, it says the tip-off will be a tentative time of 8.30, but of course, it only depends on when Kansas and Iowa State will wrap up. The Longhorns are a two-and-a-half-point favorite, the over-under at 146-and-a-half. Marco, before we hit break, who was the most impressive team yesterday? Of all eight that played in those four games, who were you most impressed with in the Big 12 tournament down in Kansas City? Uh, it's got to be, oh man, it's either TCU or Kansas, because... KU, the circumstances that they were playing under is just that, that the, for them to go out there, it's going to sound cheesy. They were they played with the heart of a champion yesterday, and it showed. They went out there and handled business very professionally, and uh, Norm Roberts, now leading this team right now as the interim head coach through the remainder of this Big 12 tournament, um, it, it's in his post-game presser yesterday, he just... He he said he he said it that the job had to go on. And that's what self wants. He wants the guys to um, know control. You can only control what you can't, what you can, and you can't what you can't. And so that's what the message to the team was yesterday, according to Norm Roberts, was we we can control this game in front of us. That's what's that's what we can do. Uh, what's happening right now with Bill Self? He is in the best place possible with this with, with the condition that he is in. So for Kansas, just focusing on playing basketball and knowing that their head coach was being taken care of and was doing well, um, I'm sure that brought him some comfort heading into that game. But still, playing West Virginia, a team that was riding hot after their victory against Texas Tech, a team desperate for victories to help build their NCAA resume, um, it's just going out there, doing it. Um, of course, in front of your in front of your hometown. Uh, it's. Um, I thought that that was that right there for me was one of the one of the reasons why they were an impressive team. But also TCU man forcing twenty turnovers against Kansas State. Just the aggressiveness that they played with. Um, 
Stan Weber re- reiter- reiterated reiterated it today on the Border Patrol. He said it, he's been saying it all season, though. But TCU at their best, they can be the best team in this conference. So, uh, the Horn Frogs blew me away yesterday with how they handled Kansas State. Um, so those two right there. But the stat that stood out to me, and you touched on it, Iowa State, 44 rebounds to Baylor, 17, man. I couldn't help but thinking about to that Baylor uh, upset in the NCAA tournament yep. postgame. They got more rebounds than us. Yeah, and that was Yale upsetting Baylor. And I, I always blank on who it was. I want to say it was like – it wasn't – I want to say the last name was Prince. That that comes to mind. But they asked him how did Yale out-rebound Baylor – and he said, well, they went up and they grabbed the ball more times than we did. Torian Prince, yeah. Torian Prince, okay. Yeah. So Torian Prince, Torian Prince, I can't remember how you pronounce it. But yeah, it was Torian Prince that said that about Yale. And Iowa State did that a hell of a lot better than Baylor did yesterday, out-rebounding them 45-19, to 19, I believe it was. I want to make sure I get that stat exactly correct. It was actually 43-15. to 15. So a little bit off on my numbers there, but 43-15 to 15 in favor of the Cyclones. They will take on Kansas tonight, and after that it'll be TCU and Texas. We'll take our first break of the show when we come back. Let's go back into spring training, see what's going on with the Kansas City Royals, and recap what's been happening in the World Baseball Classic. It is more than underway. Team U.S. will play Great Britain tomorrow night. That'll have a first pitch of 8 p.m., so we'll talk a little bit about that, but it'll be all baseball talk Coming up next on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. We're back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Talking some baseball now as the WBC is in full swing. And if you haven't gotten the chance to see many of the games, I don't blame you. Some of the times have been a bit obscure. If you're wanting to watch Japan, who's one of the top teams in this entire event with Shohei Otani and Yu Darvish, They've been having first pitches of about 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. every single day because of the time difference over in Tokyo. But Japan so far has been by far and away the most dominant team to play between Pool A and Pool B. Right now in Pool A, that's taking place in Taichung. Netherlands is 2-0. Chinese Taipei is 1-1. Team Italy that has Vinny Pasquantino as their first baseman and Nicky Lopez as their third baseman. They are 1-1 one and, one and just lost last night in a thriller to Chinese Taipei. Cuba is 1-2 and, and Panama is 1-2. That is Pool A. In Pool B, Japan is a perfect 2-0. Australia is 1-0 with Royals prospect Robbie Glendinning. He's already hit a home run in that game. That Pool B, The Pool B games are taking place in the Tokyo Dome, of course, in Japan. China is 0-2. The Czech Republic is 1-0. And Korea who just got routed by Japan, bottoms them out at 0-2. In Pool C, which is where the U.S. is, that'll be taking place in Phoenix, playing at the Diamondback Stadium at Chase Field. Canada, Colombia, Great Britain, Mexico, and of course, the United States of America. The U.S. will take on Great Britain on Saturday, first pitch of 8 p.m. Adam Wainwright will be, will be getting the start in Game 1 for the U.S. And in Pool D... 
This has been considered the death pool in the WBC that will be taking place in Miami at Marlins Park. The Dominican Republic, who have the most loaded team top to bottom, both offensively and with the pitching staff. They have Sandy Alcantara of the Marlins, Christian Javier of the Astros. Their lineup consists of Juan Soto. They have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. They have Jeremy Pena. They have uh, Manny Machado as well. It's it's a completely loaded and, and different type of team that we haven't really seen in the WBC. You go back to 2017. This event, by the way, was supposed to take place in 2021, but due to COVID problems, they had to push it back to 2023. But in 2017, when the U.S. won, the Dominican Republic didn't make it to the championship game. It was the U.S. and Puerto Rico playing, and Puerto Rico is in Pool D. They also have Venezuela, where Salvador Perez is playing. They have Nicaragua where Chesler Cuthbert is playing, and they have Team Israel as well. So Pool D out of Miami is by far and away the most dangerous pool of any of the four. U.S. should have no problem getting out of Pool C, barring any collapse. They have real no strong competitor, maybe Mexico, and a fun stat about their game against Mexico. They will take on Mexico on Sunday. That game is already sold out. So will be a wild, wild, chaotic environment. If you haven't been watching any of the games, they have had some fantastic environments in Taiwan and in Tokyo. So I watched the Shohei Otani game where he started game one for Japan against China. Tokyo Dome was packed. I mean, the coolest thing about Shohei Otani in Japan, he is like God over there in baseball. He's pitching in a stadium where he's got billboard ads of himself in the outfield. And up top in the high risers, the nosebleeds, he's everywhere. And they've already beaten China and Korea. And Korea is, is Japan's biggest rival in the WBC. And it was packed in the Tokyo Dome. I mean, absolutely packed. And they might have the best pitching staff of anybody in the WBC. I would rank the pitching staffs as Japan, the DR, and the U.S. I know this. I said top to bottom, the DR has the best pitching staff. The way I saw Japan pitch yesterday against Korea... It's filthy. Man, they got guys thrown from every single angle. They have 88-mile-an-hour splitters, 102-mile-an-hour fastballs, wipeout sliders, slurves. They have that funky wind-up. You know, it messes up the timing. The pace is different. The rhythm's different. Japan is going to be a very tough out. Now, in 2017, it was the U.S. eliminating Japan in the semifinals game. Lot taller task this time around going up against Team Japan. But the environments in Taiwan and Tokyo have been ridiculous. Man, Chinese Taipei in Taichung has brought in a serious amount of following, of course, with it being in Taiwan. When they played Team Italy last night, they rallied late, and that place was rocking. It's the smallest stadium of anywhere these these first pool games are being played between Tokyo, Phoenix, and Miami. But still, that place has been packed. It's been fun to watch. I strongly encourage everybody to tune into these games, even if the U.S. isn't playing. If you just want to watch the U.S., that's all fine. But if you want to watch games in the Tokyo Dome or in Taichung, it is fantastic to watch. But here's how it's all going to break down between Pool A, Pool B, Pool C, and Pool D. So the U.S. is going to have to win two of their games. Now, you got to beat at least Great Britain, and you got to take down... Mexico is their toughest competitor, but you take care of Mexico, you'll be moving on just fine to the quarterfinals. And the quarterfinals would be 
if you are the winner of your pool, you would take on the the runner-up in Pool D. So if I was to make predictions for the U.S., I'd imagine they emerge from Pool C as the champion. They would then go play in Miami next week. It would be on Saturday, be down in Miami, Florida. They would take on the runner-up in Pool D. My expectation would be that that would be Puerto Rico. And then the Dominican Republic would take on Mexico as the runner-up in Pool C. So you'd have all those matchups going down in Miami. And, man, that is something I would be inherently jealous of. I mean, you look at all the teams that would be down there in Miami, you'd have Mexico, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and the U.S. All those games are going to be sold out. They were the last time they were down in Miami. But that's how I expect that side of the quarterfinals to break down. I'd expect over on the other side of the bracket, which those quarterfinals will take place in the Tokyo Dome, you'll have Japan as the champion out of Pool B. The runner-up, I'm going to go with ooh, Australia or the Czech Republic. Korea's running out of time, I think. Korea's already 0-2. They're going to have to have a, a, a win-out sort of scenario if they want to get into the next round. But I'm going to go with the Czech Republic as the runner-up out of Pool B. The Pool A winner, I'm going to go with the Netherlands. And I think Chinese Taipei will be the runner-up. So then it would be Chinese Taipei against the Czech Republic and Japan against the Netherlands. Or excuse me, I had the Netherlands as the winner. They will take on the Czech Republic. And then you'd have Chinese Taipei against Japan. I think Japan emerges out of that quarterfinals round. And in the semifinals matchup, I think I'd have the U.S. and the DR against the Netherlands and Japan. And I think I'll go Japan and U.S. meeting in the championship round, which will be in Miami on March 21st. And then I think I'm going to stick with my bias here and go with the United States of America. But it has been so much fun to watch in these first couple of rounds. And more importantly, the U.S. have Game 1 taking place in Phoenix on Saturday against Great Britain. Adam Wainwright of the St. Louis Cardinals will be going Game 1. Bobby Witt Jr. in their spring training game yesterday, if you want to look at where the Royals may fit into this conversation, he was 2-for-2 with a stolen base. And the U.S.'s 6-0 win over the Anaheim Angels yesterday. So maybe Brady Singer gets a start. Maybe he comes out of the bullpen. Maybe Bobby Witt Jr. gets a couple of bats on Saturday. But if anything, the quest starts now. The U.S. has only won one WBC title. Now, it was, it was created back in 2006. Japan won the first two. They won in 2006, and they won in 2000. Or excuse me, I think they won in 05 and 09. And then in 2013, it was the DR that won 2017, U.S. won. So U.S. is going for their second title, Japan their third, and DR their second as well. Those are the three betting favorites out of the WBC. As for the Kansas City Royals, and right now it's a little bit different because they do not have Salvador Perez in spring training. They do not have Bobby Wood Jr. They do not have Vinny Pasquantino. They do not have MJ Melendez. They do not have Angel Serpa. They don't have Brady Singer. They don't have Nicky Lopez. They're missing a lot of guys. But they're still 11-2 and in the Cactus League. They'll be taking on the San Diego Padres later on today, 205 first pitch in Surprise, Arizona. Jordan Lyles getting the start in that game. But yesterday, they hammered Great Britain, who will take on U.S. on Saturday, as we just mentioned. They won 8-1. to Zach Greinke got the start. 
He he logged three innings and struck out four. Jackson Core, maybe the shining star of yesterday's game. He threw two scoreless innings and had five punchouts. Jackson Core needs something. He needs something going out of spring training. He's not going to break camp with the team, but we need to hold on to something that he can still turn things around and be a valuable arm to this bullpen. Amir Garrett had a pair of strikeouts and a scoreless inning. Dylan Coleman, who's now working in a low 80s curveball into his arsenal. So a lot of Royals bullpen arms are adding an extra extra pitch into their arsenal. Same thing with the rotation. Daniel Lynch is adding in a, another curveball to his arsenal. He's got that sweeping slider. But I think every pitcher is trying to add another element to their offering. Jose Quas threw a scoreless inning. And then you also had Evan Sisk have a scoreless inning as well for the Royals. He was acquired in that Michael A. Taylor trade that sent him to Minnesota. The day before that, the Royals won 14-5 to over the Chicago White Sox. They tagged Dylan Seas for 11 runs in less than an inning. And the way that it can work in spring training, you can pull a guy in an inning and bring him back out for the next one. Dylan Seas was pulled in the first after the Royals tagged him for five runs. They sent him back out in the second because they wanted him to get some work in, get his pitch count back up or reach the pitch count they set for him. And he had to be pulled again in the second inning because the Royals tagged him for six. Michael Massey had a grand slam. Jackie Bradley Jr., who's trying to make the team, he was two for three with an RBI double. Hunter Dozier was two for three with an RBI and a walk. Nick Prado was one for three with an RBI and a walk. Michael Massey, of course, had the grand slam and five RBIs. Logan Porter, one of the catchers in the farm system, was two for two. Kyle Isbell had a hit as well. Freddie Fermina hit. They also had a hit from Tyler Tolbert. And across the board, their pitching staff, they were phenomenal. Brad Keller looked really sharp. That game was on TV, by the way. He looks different this year. I know I may be reading into it too much, but he had four punch-outs over three scoreless setting. Mike Myers, who they signed on a minor league deal in the offseason, he threw a perfect two innings with three strikeouts. Aroldis Chapman had a scoreless setting as well, did allow a run, but it was unearned. Josh Taylor allowed four runs, but only one of them was unearned. And they got a scoreless inning from Nick Nick Whitgren, who had two strikeouts as well. And Colin Snyder had a strikeout and a scoreless inning. So the Royals at 11-2 and and Cactus Play still looking really, really strong. That roster starting to shape out a little bit. There's already been some a couple of cuts down there in surprise. But the Royals are well on their way to winning another Cactus League title, whether that means much or not. If anything, we are starting to see some of these guys take a step forward. The strikeout-to-walk ratio has been phenomenal. The Royals are seventh right now in all the teams in spring training. That is important because they were dead last in baseball last year in that. They're throwing more strikes. They're walking more. It looks like a better team out there, a more fun team to watch. I know it's spring training, but at least you have some optimism going into the regular season. Marco, a thing to add on the Royals' red-hot start in spring training. No, a question for you uh, because the Royals have pieces that should be up on the major league roster um, that were guys that they signed this off season that could be utilized in trades during the regular season. So I just I I got to know in your I want to know in your opinion since there's going to be guys who are going to get the call up. I assume after if 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 that's how it goes, where and a Chapman gets traded, uh, maybe a Jackie Bradley Jr. If they see some, if someone of another team finds value in them, um, although he's not a concrete. Uh, 25 man or 26 man roster player uh, on opening day. I don't see him being an opening day guy, I guess. But um, who who are some guys right now who are going to start off in the minor leagues that you're excited about for this for this Royals team? I think uh, a guy that I'm I'm really going to be gauging here early on is Michael Garcia. I think Michael Garcia. Has so you been don't think around. he'll be an opening day? I don't roster? think so. Okay. I, I think the way Hunter Dozier's played in spring training that they're not going to move him. 
off that spot. They're going to let Michael Garcia go down and get some work at third base so that he can be the replacement for Hunter Dozier. But as long as Hunter Dozier stays healthy, he's going to be the third baseman for this team going into May or June. If he really struggles there, then yeah, you can move Michael Garcia in there. But I think the Royals want to give him at least one more chance because they're not expecting to be a true competitor this year, and he's under contract. And he's played third base before. They don't have an everyday third baseman on that roster. Nate Eaton's not one. Michael Garcia's not. But I think I'm excited to see what Garcia can do. I'm really excited to see how Tyler Gentry handles playing in AAA again. He was great in AA. He's one of the best pure hitters in the minor leagues. I'd expect him to get a lot of at-bats down there before getting a chance. At some point in the major league level, I think he'll have his debut this year. Nick Lofton, another guy, he's really beefed up. Already has a pair of home runs in spring training. I think on the pitching side of things, I'm excited to see if Alec Marsh can take a step forward after a really bad 2022. Want to see if Jonathan Bolin can be maybe that first arm down in the minor leagues to make his debut this season. He was another 2018 draft class guy out of Memphis. So a lot of guys to watch there, but I think overall, this team, they got a lot of bright spots, and they got a lot of guys that I think are going to take a step forward. They have a much more prepared, much more analytically inclined coaching staff, and that's going to go a long way. You are going to see a lot of changes with this Royals team. You're going to see a better advanced approach. You're going to see a group that's more loose. They're not as tense. You're going to start seeing this team have fun again. I think you'll really enjoy watching this team, even if they only win 75 games. It's going to be a team you can get behind and root for because you know they're taking a step in the right direction, which they've all been backward steps over the last five to seven years. But right now in spring training, as I always say, I said this on yesterday's show, it's better to win in spring training than it is to lose, even though these games don't count. All right, let's wrap up the show with some fact or fiction. Five question Five takes in under five minutes. Marco, fire away. Jack, fact or fiction, KU covers against Iowa State today. Four and a half spread in this game against the Cyclones. It is going to be the best environment we see down there at the Big 12 tournament. Two of the biggest fan bases, two of the loudest fan bases. Kansas and Iowa State will be completely sold out. Iowa State now suddenly hot after back-to-back wins against Baylor. Kansas is... I guess you could say hot after the win against West Virginia. They also had the bad performance against Texas. But when you had the most quad one wins in college basketball and you won the best conference in basketball and you're still having that I-7, the number one overall seed, you're going to be coming in prepared to go for this one. I think Norm Roberts will have his group ready. I'll take the Jokes to win by more than five points in this game over Iowa State. TCU and Texas go to distance in the overtime. It's always tough to make those predictions on overtime games. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going tonight to watch KU and Iowa State and hopefully stay for TCU and Texas. So I'm hoping this game does go into overtime. It kind of has that feel, though. I feel like there's one game in the Big 12 tournament that's going to be a thriller. We haven't had one yet. Even though I kind of teased it in the opening show there was a thriller. There, were, there really wasn't a thriller. There were competitive games, good offensive games, but mainly in the first half. They were shaping up to be thrillers, and they didn't turn out to be that. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say it because it's fun, it's a Friday, and it's a Big 12 tournament. I'm going to go fact. I think this game will go into overtime because you have two of the best guards in the conference, Marcus Carr and Mike Miles. Maybe Chuck O'Bannon can have another great performance like he did against Kansas State. But I think the difference maker in this game, because Timmy Allen's not playing for Texas, I'm going to go with Christian Bishop for Texas. They need a lot out of that big man to move on to the championship game. Fact or fiction, Team USA goes undefeated in pool play. This is going to be a tough one. I think I will go fact, because Mexico's the only team they really have to worry about. I'm not really concerned about Colombia. 
So I think as long as they get past Mexico, I will take them to go undefeated in pool play. K-State goes to Albany for the NCAA tournament. Oh, it is a waiting game at this point, but I am going to go fiction. I think they'll be a 4C, but I think they'll still get into Denver at least. And UNC elects to go to the NIT. I saw this tweet last night, and it's kind of upsetting if you are a North Carolina fan. said, I was in the locker room after that loss to Virginia. This team looks done. They, it doesn't look like they want to play basketball anymore this season. An NIT would be a bad look for North Carolina. What a disastrous season for Hubert Davis. This was preseason number one, and they are more than likely going to miss the NCAA tournament. Bad, bad beer for UNC and a bad finish with their loss to Virginia. There is Ray Charles, so it's time to go. That wraps up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. We'll talk to you on Monday. You enjoy the weekend and the championship games, Kansas City. Well, I guess if you-